Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, NPR, The Majority Report, Rachel Maddow, and The Young Turks. And welcome back, my friends. Ten minutes before the hour, Tom Hartman here with you. So, if the Bush administration is trying to gin up a war... Why? Just have to ask yourself the question, why? Why would the Bush administration be trying to gin up a war? I wrote about this on commondreams.org, and you'll find it over at truthout.org, and, and uh, informationclearinghouse.info, and uh, buzzflash.com, and, and opednews.com, and other places all around the web. Uh, in an article titled, Democracy Be Damned, Republicans Need Another War. And this is the thing that, that absolutely boggles my mind, is that, on talk show after talk show after talk show, whether it's radio or television, you hear people saying, gee, why did Bush go to war in Iraq? I mean, there's actually people, you know, uh, even conservatives. I mean, Chris Matthews asking this question of people in the last couple of days. Well, why, you know, if, if he knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction there, and it's pretty, pretty obvious now that he knew this, that they were just lying to us. They were cherry-picking the uh, so-called intelligence. You know, if he knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction, why war? Was it for oil? I mean, was that was that the reason? Because if that was the reason, eh, we seem to have kind of blown it. And some people thought that was. I mean, after all, there was Dick Cheney. You know. Iraq sits on top of 10% of the world's oil reserves. Very significant reserves, second only to Saudi Arabia. And George W. Bush, when he declared war, he turned to the people of Iraq and he said, now I'd like to speak to the people of Iraq. Your fate will depend on your actions. Do not destroy oil wells. And a lot of people uh, all over the world at that point said, oh, that's what it's all about. But the fact of the matter is that we're pumping less oil out of Iraq now than we were before. And billions of dollars obviously has been stolen, lost, skimmed, schemed out of this thing. But, you know, I, I frankly don't think it's about I don't think it's about oil. You could argue it might be about control of the Middle East and, you know, strategic oil, you know, blah, blah. And now, uh, in fact, perhaps we'll have time to get into this in the next hour. Uh, Saudi Aramco has essentially, for all practical purposes, admitted that they are now past peak oil. Their oil fields are declining at the rate of 8% per year. Bad news, unless you happen to be an investor in an oil company. But I would suggest that the reason why Bush really went to war is the most cynical and craven of all reasons. And we've frankly, in, as far as I can tell, only had one other president in the history of the United States who did this. And that was McKinley. Back just before the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. When McKinley started the Spanish-American War on the advice of his advisor, Mark Hanna, who Karl Rove has said in newspaper, radio, and magazine interviews, is his role model. Mark Hanna, the first modern political handler in the 1890s, the late 1890s. The, you know, they, they faked the explosion on the USS Maine, or they took a boiler explosion and, 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 and faked it up and said, you know, we're going to have a war for political purposes, to gain political capital. I mean, you get, uh, James Madison saw this coming on April 20th, 1795. He wrote, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded 
because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. He said in War II, the discretionary power of the president is extended. His influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied, and all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. This same malignant aspect in republicanism may be traced in the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud growing out of a state of war and in the degeneracy of manners and morals endangered by both. No nation, James Madison wrote on April 20th, 1795, no nation can preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. And I would suggest to you that freedom is the last thing George Bush wants. That if you if you go back and you listen to the words, Cindy Sheehan saying it uh, very eloquently, she, she did it right. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then Governor George Bush stated, "One of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander in chief." My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. There you go. And that's, uh, that's from an interview that was done with uh, Cy Hirsch, as I recall. No, it was Russ Baker, an interview with Russ Baker, who interviewed Herskowitz. And Herskowitz went on to say that Bush ex- expressed frustration at a lifetime as an underachiever in the shadow of an accomplished father. And, and he said in mil- aggressive military action, he saw the opportunity to emerge from his father's shadow. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Norris. Another retired general is calling for Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld to resign. John Riggs served in the U.S. Army for 39 years. He began his military career as an enlisted soldier in Vietnam and rose to the level of a three-star general serving in the Pentagon. Riggs told NPR today that Rumsfeld is responsible for many of the mistakes in Iraq, and he says he should step down. I think it's in some ways his arrogance that's keeping things going. I think he should step aside and let someone step in who can be more realistic. General Riggs is the latest retired U.S. general to publicly call for Donald Rumsfeld to leave. All has spoken out in the past few weeks. We reached General Riggs today in Nashville where he was waiting to catch a plane. He said the U.S. military is suffering because of poor leadership and political agendas. As I worked in the Pentagon for a number of years, I just think there was an atmosphere of arrogance about our approach to the war in Iraq as well as Afghanistan. And I think in many cases it resulted in military advice not being well received or in many cases not taken at all. You say it was an atmosphere of arrogance. I'm wondering if there are specific mistakes you think were made in the lead-up to the war and in the execution of the war in Iraq right now. Well, I think that, you know, the war itself, as far as the combat phase of it, what General Franks and others did was, you know, highly admirable. But I think what happened is that we just grossly underestimated the numbers of soldiers that would be required in a stability phase, which we're still in in Iraq. 
as well as the impact that it would have upon the United States Army and the other services over the long haul. So I think that where General Shinseki, the then Army Chief of Staff, gave a fairly realistic estimate on the number of troops that would be received, you know, Mr. Wolfowitz and the Secretary of Defense downplayed those numbers because of whatever reasons, I assume they were political, and I think we just grossly underestimated what would be required in order to stabilize Iraq and then be able to bring stability throughout that whole area, and we did it because we just eased into the numbers instead of realistic estimates to begin with. The uh, generals who've called for Donald Rumsfeld's resignation, Anthony Zinni, Major General Paul Eaton, Lieutenant General Greg Newbold, they've all talked about not having enough troops on the ground, about delays in sending troops, about troops being poorly equipped. Were they sending those messages to the Pentagon? Were they, were they actually telling the Pentagon about this before uh, before they actually came forward and stepped for, and, and called for Donald Rumsfeld's resignation? Well, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure what they would tell Secretary Rumsfeld in private. I know what General Shinseki, the re- chief of staff of the Army, told him. I know what I said while I was still on active duty. Neither one of our suggestions were acted upon at all. I mean, they were just poo-pooed at being wildly optimistic. And I think it's that atmosphere of arrogance that caused them to think that they had the right answers. And quite honestly... They only need the military advice when it satisfies their agenda, and I think that's a mistake and part of why I think that he should go ahead and resign. And let's get somebody in that can run the Defense Department in a more practical manner than what is being run. Now, sir, some might say that that this is a bit of sour grapes on your part uh, because you also came out early, more than two years ago, and said the Army needed to be bigger by at least 10,000, and I understand that that was not a welcome suggestion. What happened when you said that? Well, actually, my figure was not 10,000. It was considerably more than that, and I think what I was speaking of at the time was, was the Army the right size for the missions? that we could be asked to do. And one could read the president's national security strategy and see to it that our services, especially the ground forces and the Army specifically, were really in a global war on terrorism for the long haul. And we just were not adequately sized to be able to stay in the conflict. And so I did an interview while I was still on active duty, and I suggested that we didn't have the numbers that we needed for the long haul. And what happened when you made that suggestion? I wound up retiring uh, at less than the grade that I was holding. And, uh, you know, I'd be very candid with you. I can't, you know, for sure say that that was a vindictive approach to retiring me. I have to think in my mind that that was partially because I was outspoken on the numbers. And you lost a star in that process also. That That I did. The demotion of a general is highly unusual in the U.S. military. Officially, an investigation by the Army Inspector General's office found General Riggs guilty of two violations of contracting rules. But the infractions were determined to be minor, and so they were left out of his record. He says that is not what's motivating him now. That isn't the issue at this point. I mean, what's at at issue at this point is making sure that, you know, we're well-led that military advice is taken when it should be taken, that this atmosphere of not even micromanagement, it's nanomanagement, stops. 
and that, you know, I believe the civilian leadership is in charge, and they should be in charge, but I think they should take sound military advice. Do you expect that at some point an active general might call for Secretary Rumsfeld's resignation? I don't think so. I think that, uh, you know, we are loyal to the max, and I just don't think we are in the political realm, so I don't think they will call. They may critique how the job's done, but they won't go so far as to call for his resignation. That's, that's not within their purview. That's General John Riggs, who today became the latest retired senior military figure to call for the resignation of Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. NPR asked the Pentagon to comment on what General Riggs had to say, Spokesman Jim Turner said the Pentagon is, quote, not going to go tit for tat on those calling for Secretary Rumsfeld to step down. And Spokesman Turner referred to this statement made earlier this week by the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. As far as Pete Pace is concerned, uh, this country is exceptionally well served by the man standing on my left. Nobody, nobody works harder than he does to take care of the PFCs and Lance Corporals and Lieutenants and the Captains. He does his homework, he works weekends, he works nights. People can question my judgment or his judgment, but they should never question the dedication to patriotism and the work ethic of Secretary Rumsfeld. And the White House had this comment today on Secretary Rumsfeld. Spokesman Scott McClellan said the president believes Secretary Rumsfeld is doing a very fine job during a challenging period in our nation's history. Cy Hirsch on Wolf Blitzer CNN Late Edition yesterday talking about our presence in Iran right now. Number five. Bottom line, what you're saying here is that there are American forces clandestinely already inside Iran. That's what I'm saying. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that's very interesting to me about it. They're not special forces. They're regular military. And that's part of the Rumsfeld notion that all military guys are potentially special forces. And I think it's, it's fraught with danger, but they're there. And uh, I'm, uh, we're not saying any more specifically about where they are or what they're doing. Nobody wants to see anybody get hurt, but they are there. And the American public should know it because I assure you the Iranian government knows it. So... Uh... Actually, that was my favorite part of the Hirsch interview. My, that my favorite part was when he was talking about military officials that were going to resign, and Wolf says, do you want to name names? And Hirsch goes, are you kidding? Right, of course not. <laughs> and he says, because we have a quote-unquote punitive government right now. Now, it's interesting that this story comes out today, because uh, you had this other story of the uh, a, a third high-ranking general, uh, a guy named uh, uh, General Gregory Newbold, who's come out in Time magazine and basically said, I resigned basically because of the war, but I should have been even more vocal. And I make a call to all military personnel, particularly the high-level generals. Leadership is a, 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 as an officer of the United States, you swear an oath, not to a person, but to the Constitution. It is time for you to stand up and protect the Constitution. Are, are we at a, a, a turning point here? Are we, is, because it's clear the, the Bush administration, it's clear the neocons want to attack Iran. Are we at a turning point where we actually have the military basically standing up and saying, we're not going to go along for the ride here? I'd like to think so, and they're clearly being pushed to the brink. But let's keep in mind here that what Hirsch is saying is they will re many guys will resign from the military, top officers, if the nuclear 
part isn't taken out of the equation. Okay. Uh, and this is not to say that I think that the military is, you know, hunky-dory about the whole plan, but they are they're raised and trained to be loyal to their government and to their civilian leadership. It is a, I mean, to, to ask them to resign is a huge, huge thing, and the fact they're even considering it all is, is, is stunning. Um, but it's a, it's a very hard thing to expect them to, to resign because of the entire strategy. They're not, they're not loyal to that particular government. They swear an allegiance to the Constitution, first uh, I, and foremost, above and beyond their government. And that's why I was saying today, Sam, when you were telling me about uh, Noble, uh, is that the gentleman who said, I should have spoken up earlier? Uh, Newbold. Newbold. And, you know, he, yes, he should have as should of many other military, uh, quote-unquote, good soldiers. That was not being a loyal soldier, to be loyal to the Team B analysis, the cherry-picking, the manipulation, uh, to stand idly by as Saxby Chandless turned Max Cleland into Osama bin Laden in those ads. I believe that it, they, swore, they swear an oath to the Constitution and then to the public trust. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean it technically. I mean it more, more figuratively. No, I know. Yeah. I, what I'm saying, too, yeah. is there is no excuse. I don't know and, wherein anyone could convince themselves uh, for the Iraq invasion or for this that they have ever been upholding uh, any type of allegiance to the Constitution or to the American people. Generally speaking, you know, it's a good thing that military leaders don't try to undercut civilian leadership. I mean, yes. that's, that's the beauty of the American government. That we, don't, we don't live in a, in a, in a military you know, junta. You know, we, the civilian leadership calls the shots. Mm. But when your civilian leadership is caught totally off the rails and is not just not listening to the military commanders, not listening to the will of the people, and in addition to that, they're using the military for their illegal surveillance. Yes. They want to expand the uh, illegal wiretapping to use military enforcement for this illegal the, program, which is against the Posse Comitatus Act. So this is this is very important, though, because it is a a line that should be very clear and should not be be crossed. Because you do not want. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you you're setting a precedent, even under this circumstance that the uh, military leadership feels comfortable getting involved in the political arena, and they should not be doing that. I mean, really, where they should be coming from is from the oversight that is provided by Congress, which is completely absent. I promised you General George Jowlwan... I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. He was on Wolf Blitzer's Situation Room on April 11th discussing Rumsfeld's poor handling of Iraq. Just a quick clip here. What's the mentality? A four-star general, a three-star general meets with the defense secretary. The defense secretary is hell-bent on doing what he wants to do. The general or general disagrees. At what point do you stand up and say, Mr. Secretary, I have to resign. Now, we're talking here about over Iraq. You have hit the nail on the head. It's our responsibility as military leaders to stand up and be countered on tough issues. And if that's not done, if they cannot take the intimidation, the micromanagement by this Department of Defense, which there is, if they don't stand up and have the moral courage to stand up and defend uh, their troops and the mission that they've been assigned, then it's their issue, their problem. And uh, I would hope there'd be more of that. I've been saying that for a long time. Uh, this does not mean you don't support the troops or you don't support the, the war even. But it's the method, the tone. And I would hope the secretary would realize all of this. Now, this, is, this is a very difficult 
situation. I mean, in, in some ways, it's almost a confusing situation because you have people who, in the military, who by training do what they're told. And you have a constitution which clearly places authority over the military in the hands of civilians. And this was very, very intentional on the part of the founders of this country. They did not want, did not want the military to have its own independent branch of power or authority. They wanted to be sure that it was answerable to somebody who was answerable to us, and that that somebody had no interests that concurred with those of the military beyond the defense of this country. And that's why they made the president the commander-in-chief of the military. And the president then delegates his authority to do that to the Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense is then the boss of the military. So here we have a general saying, in effect, that the military should be saying, the, the officers in the military, now the, the point here, and we mentioned this in the program a few days ago, but it bears repeating, the point here being that enlisted men and women take an oath to both to the Constitution of the United States and to follow the orders of their superior officers. Office, the officer corps does not take an oath to follow the orders of the superior officers. They take an oath to protect and defend not the president, not the secretary of defense, not to follow orders. They take an oath to protect and defend not even the United States, the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States is placed higher than the well-being of the country itself in the oaths of office. Now, you think about that for a minute. I mean, you say, whoa, wait a minute. Are you, are you kidding? No, seriously, this is it. The Constitution of the United States you know, very clearly lays it out. In fact, here, Article 2, Section 1, Paragraph 8 of the Constitution of the United States. This is the, the executive branch, right? This is about the president. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. This is what the president has to swear to. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, by the, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Period. End of quote. End of sentence. End of paragraph. End of section. There's nothing in there about protecting Americans. There's nothing in there about defending Americans. It's about defending and protecting the Constitution. And the Constitution, by the way, says you can't put people in jail without a trial, without rights of, you know, don't, but not to, you know, get off on a rant here about uh, Jose Padilla. But the, the point is that the officer corps, just like the president in the military, take an oath to the Constitution. Now, this puts the officer corps in a terrible dilemma. What if the president is doing something that they believe violates the Constitution? And yet their job description is that they have to do what the president tells them. Their inclination by training is to do what they are ordered by their superiors, and the president is the ultimate superior. And yet their oath, what they swore to do, was protect and defend the Constitution. What should they do? And if they did, if the, if the officer corps in the military did stand up to the president and say, no, I'm not going to do that, 
At that point, they've committed insubordination. And if they take an action based on that, no, I'm not going to do that, they have committed, they, they have begun a coup d'etat. They've, become, they've, they've begun a military coup. This is why all these guys, all these officers, who are now asking their fellow officers to stand up and speak out, are asking them to first resign so that they will not be in the position of advocating a coup by the military against the Bush administration. But it's, I mean, we're talking about very, very, very fine lines here. We have a, a, a military now that is so furious with and so upset with the Bush administration and upset about you know the, 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 the Bush and Rumsfeld and Cheney essentially breaking the military. That they are suggesting that officers within the officer corps should, should step back and, and, and resign and then speak out, knowing that they can't speak out before they resign. I mean, this is just breathtaking. And I don't mean that as good or bad. I mean, just shocking. This is something that is unique in my experience. I think outside of the Civil War, to the best of my knowledge, there has never been a time in the United States when, when the senior command of the United States military has gone to the to the extraordinary step of reason, in numbers. We're not talking about one. I'm, I'm sure you know you find one or two persons you know here or there you know Spanish American War whatever uh, World War One uh, Korean War who said you know enough of this uh, certainly Vietnam you know spoke out but here now this you know this is like echoing across the officer corps. This is truly spooky. Those are some of the stories we're keeping an eye on today. But every day here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Uh, today's underbelly tactic, window dressing. George W. Bush and this administration generally uh, really like doing the whole military dress-up thing. You know, uh, using military audiences and military settings, military backdrops to make the president look like commander in chief and, and, and using the respect that Americans have for our military uh, to absorb criticism of the way that this administration has handled or not handled the war. Por ejemplo, uh, let us go back in time to May 1st, 2003. You may recall George W. Bush, enormous codpiece, aircraft carrier, regrettable announcement. My fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. Yeah. But, you know, it's not just landing on aircraft carriers and making all the people on the aircraft carrier make color wear color-coordinated suits to make your landing look good. It's not just that. It's also citing the military, citing military commander's judgment as a way to evade criticism and accountability for the way the, the running of this war has been screwed up. I will continue to be guided by the advice that matters, the sober judgment of our military leaders. I understand he's saying that you may want to question my judgment, but surely you are not unpatriotic enough to question the sober judgment of our military commanders. 
So, okay, then, then like, you know, it's useful for specific questions, too. Okay, George, why haven't you sent more troops then? He'll, and he'll respond and say, oh, it's not me. It's the sober judgment of our military commanders. If our commanders on the ground say we need more troops, I will send them. But it's their judgment, not mine. They use military settings, military audiences, military credibility, the deference that those of us who are not in the military show to those who are in the military and military matters, military window dressing. Because when it comes down to actually listening to what military commanders are saying about how the military is being run, that's apparently a more complicated matter for these guys. There are now six generals, six recently retired generals who have called for Donald Rumsfeld to step down as defense secretary. The latest two are uh, Army Major General John Riggs, uh, who said this in an interview with NPR yesterday. And quite honestly, they only need the military advice when it satisfies their agenda. And I think that's a mistake and part of why I think that he should go ahead and resign. The latest, the sixth of the six so far just this month, was Charles Swanick. Uh, he headed up the 82nd Airborne in Iraq. Here's what he told CNN yesterday. I feel that he has micromanaged the generals who are leading our forces there to achieve uh, our strategic objectives. I really believe that we need a new Secretary of Defense. Swanick suggests the problem is that things are simply out of kilter in the traditional balance between civilian control of the military and letting the generals do their job on the battlefield. Senior leaders see their advancement only at the favor of Secretary Rumsfeld, not because of the good job they do, not because of the potential they have, more so to the favor of Secretary Rumsfeld. That's where we get amiss in this whole thing. Just so we're clear, that was Charles Swanick, headed up the 82nd Airborne in Iraq, recently retired, now the sixth general to call for Donald Rumsfeld to resign. Just to be clear, window dressing, using the military as a backdrop, using the military uh, to hide behind, to avoid accountability and to not have to answer questions about their judgment. That's the right wing political tactic at work here. Actually respecting the military enough to respond to their criticisms of the Pentagon chief. Apparently that's totally off the table. That's beyond bounds. Welcome back to the Young Turks, Jake, Ben, and Jill with you. Our Secretary of Defense, unfortunately, to this day, six disastrous years later, is still Don Rumsfeld. Uh, he does not speak to the press, uh, uh, regular mainstream media, and give interviews to them on an individual basis. But he does go on conservative talk shows. Apparently one of them is the Bill Cunningham Show. Uh, first time I've ever heard of it, but I can guarantee you he hasn't heard of us either. So, God bless. Go forward, Bill Cunningham. <laughs> uh, Rumsfeld's on there, and he has this to say about the criticism of the Secretary of Defense and the war. Quote, of course the implication that there was something wrong with the war plan is amusing, almost, because of the fact that the war plans fashioned by the combatant commanders and it's reviewed in great detail by the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that it's recommended to me and the President. Okay. Now, I read that kind of slowly. Let's do it again. So I'm going to read it to you again as he would say. I'm hoping. <laughs> of course, the implication that, the, that there was something wrong with the war plan is amusing almost because of the fact that the war plan is fashioned by the combatant commanders and it's reviewed in great detail by the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Then it's recommended to me and the president. You know who I bet thinks the war plans are amusing? The Iraqis. Yeah. yeah. They have a barrel laughs every day. The, uh, uh, so, I mean, look, the uh, uh, support the troops? No. 
Blame the troops. That's all he's doing right there. Well, Every everything, if anything's gone wrong, it's their fault. Because how can you say that? How can you imply? First of all, my favorite part is the implication that there was something wrong with the war plan. Don, get a dictionary. We're not implying it. We're saying it. Yeah, Everyone in the world is saying it. It was a catastrophe. John McCain. People who support the war think it was a catastrophe. Bill Crystal thinks it was a catastrophe. Everyone thinks the plan was terrible. We think the plan in the first place just to do it was terrible. Then the plan, once you decided to do it, was terrible, too. There's Nobody's implying anything. Nobody's trying to be subtle, Don. No, Ben, I find your implications almost amusing. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine... I, I keep implying you're a Turkish-American. Yeah, it's not an implication. You are. Cenk is, uh, you know, Jill, I, I, I'm implying Jill is white and has a nice rack. I'm actually Indian, Cherokee Indian. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, you know, I, Jill was onto something here with this being amusing. I, sure, it's amusing to the Iraqi people. I'm sure that Don Rumsfeld probably thinks it's amusing to the you know, families of the soldiers we've lost, U.S. soldiers. And uh, the f- nearly 17,000 Americans that have been maimed over there. It's almost amusing to them as, sh- as well, I'm sure. Look, I mean, that's a ridiculous thing to say. I don't want to overemphasize w- what I think is a very poor choice of words here, right? But you can't. You got to be a little bit more sensitive to it. You're not a talk show host. You're not this. You're not that. You're the Secretary of Defense. You send people in to die. You can't come back and say, I find it almost amusing. But the critis- your criticism of the war, the war that I butchered, that so that over 2,300 American kids died, 17,000 got... Uh, seriously and significantly injured, I find your criticisms amusing. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. You know, you're right. I don't want to make too big a deal because he, because it's just it's in it's in context. He says amusing almost, and it's bad. And I, I love it when he makes a mistake and and he's going to have to cover for it and so forth. I, I even like the, the what I was talking about. I like the idea of the implication that sort of there. He doesn't even quite get that this is a this is not a debatable issue. The war plan sucked. If I may uh, break it down for you, if I may imply something, I'm going to imply that it sucked. Mm-hmm. It was look, the it's been three years and we've lost 2,500 guys, and you guys thought it might take six weeks. And how? In what way does anybody need to tell you to need to tell you that maybe the planning was wrong, that you didn't see what Jenk and I saw without, and I don't know anything about the area, that these guys might retreat and fight a guerrilla warfare. But Ben, but, the problem is, is Mistakes are made in war. War is tough. Right. Any war you fight, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be battle. Mistakes are going to be made. More bloodshed than you can than you can predict. I mean, this is no different than any other war we fought. I mean, so for you to blame Don Rumsfeld at this point, one of the most credited, one of the most respected Sexy. attorney generals ever. I mean, Sexy no. Defense. What did I say, attorney general? <laughs> yeah. he'd, he'd be an excellent attorney general. He um. I can't think of anyone that has more credibility. I mean, he yeah. served, I mean, for how long? Six disastrous years. No, even before that. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, this is his second tour. As I attorney, mean, as Jesus. All right. Uh, my friend Joe Pesci has something to say about uh, to Don Rosal, too. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? Uh, I couldn't agree with Joe more. Now, on to the real point, which is what Ben started with, which is... Oh, come on, man. You're going to blame the troops again? No, no, no. What, the generals told you to bring more people in, and now you turn around and you blame it on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Justice? Well, I, I didn't do the military plan. Did I do the military plan? No. The commanders told it did the military plan, and I just reviewed it and said, okay, I guess so. And then the ones that disagreed with me, I fired them. But 
oh, ooh, did I say that? You know, oh, that's almost amusing. It's funny because, I mean, I, I do listen to conservative radio, so I think I should give you guys a little background as to why he's probably approaching these conservative shows. That's, uh, by the way, where I just pulled that delightful monologue that I gave you about what a respected, credible general that he is. Um, the word on the street is, you know, these guys that he, are, he he's blaming now who have blamed him over the last couple of weeks um, for taking us into this disastrous war are only coming out because they've been out of the limelight so long. And so they found that one of these generals that came out, you know, I think the first one was what, Anthony Zinni? Yeah. yeah. He was one of the first that came out. And so when he came out and started to criticize Don Rumsfeld and the war in Iraq, he got a lot of print. You know, I mean, he was covered in talk shows and newspapers and magazines. And, you know, these generals used to be kind of like the creme de la creme. They were very important. And now they're just sitting on their... I'm going to uh, be a little like a jank here. That is, you know, look, I didn't serve in the military, but I know a little about it. And I lived for a time in a state heavy, heavily invested in the military in South Carolina, covered a lot of stories, met a lot of military men. My father uh, uh, served in, in World War II. My uncle served in World War II. People who want the limelight don't sign up for a career in the military. Mm -hmm. In fact, what they want to do is keep their head down and stay out of the papers. That's the, one of the beauties about the people who give up their lives. Almost every general could be a CEO of a company and make millions of dollars, and instead they make whatever generals make, $108,000, $84,000, whatever it is, moving from town to town when they're ordered to do so, and taking the responsibility of the lives and deaths of the, of the men and women who serve under them. It is an awesome responsibility that I was not be up to, but that I admire enormously. Mm -hmm. And the notion that these guys got were in it and loved being generals because they were popular or that they were the creme de la creme, as you say Rush Limbaugh and those other guys said, shows a profound lack of understanding that I would expect from someone who couldn't serve in the uh, United States Army in the military during Vietnam because he had a tail. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's what I thought was so appalling. And they're saying that these journalists now are calling around to... Uh, you know, to a number of generals to get word out that, you know, Rumsfeld's doing a, a bad job. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll be back in the limelight. But people will be paying attention to me. People will be respecting me. And they're like, I'm surprised we haven't seen more of these generals come out. And the fact that we've only had six, only six, shows you that these guys that so desperately want to feel important again haven't come out. I mean, shows you that it's really just Prior a handful of Jack, people. How, you read the paper every day, many papers, right? Now, you read more since the Iraq War started, since we started doing this show. <laughs> but before the Iraq War started, how many generals did you, you – you're an incredible – both you and I, we read the hell out of everything, right? Mm -hmm. How many generals, non-retired, active duty generals, did you know? Could you name? Oh, how many generals could I name? Active uh, I'd duty. Be l I'd be lucky to name three. I couldn't name one. Mm -hmm. I mean, you I know, mean, you know Schwarzkopf. No, but he was retired. He was in retired. 2000. So right. I'm saying, yeah, I know guys who retired. I know Patton. I know Omar Bradley. I know Mark Clark. I know guys who aren't serving anymore. I know oh, Eisenhower. He was a general. They're not there anymore. I can't. William Westmoreland. I can't name one general sitting. I, I can honest. barely name one now. I, no, I got to be honest. No, now you can name plenty, but but I mean, off the top of my head, I'm like half of them are gone. No, you know, Abizade, you know, you know, Casey, you know, <laughs> unfortunately. And here's unfortunately, who I can name. Here's who I can name generally the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who is sometimes a general and sometimes not from the Army and not a general. Right. Uh, Peter Pace, et cetera. But uh, honestly, before the war started, you're 100% right. I, 
I don't think I could have even named Wesley Clark, honestly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he was the Supreme Allied Commander who was in charge of all of our forces in Kosovo. Out of the limelight. Nobody can name one frickin' general active duty. They're not in the frickin' limelight, you moron. No, I love this. I love it. So now that your Republican and conservative hosts are telling you to be against the troops, against the military, against the commanders in the field, against the generals. Go ahead. Make that argument. Make my day. Do it all day long. Yap, 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 yap. And now try to convince all the suckers who listen to you. Oh, did we say support the troops? We meant attack the troops. God bless. Go forward. See what happens. And if you think it's just the retired guys who want to do book deals, by the way, I love that. One of them has a book deal as far as I know. But that's it. They all want book deals. And they say, oh, why didn't they just resign uh, instead of complaining about it afterwards? Actually, one of them did. He was promoted. And he was going to get to, you know, another star and was going to serve as the second person in command of Iraq. And he said, no, this is disastrous. It's hurting the troops. I don't want to be a part of this. So all their uh, criticism is nonsense. But it's not just that. Uh, David Broder of the Washington Post, Tim Russert of NBC, says when Murtha came out, uh, Broder says when Murtha came out, and Russert in relation to these six generals, he said people inside the Pentagon have been calling them and saying, the generals are right. John Murtha is right. We are dissatisfied. This war is a mess, and it is not our fault, man. These guys are telling us to do things that don't make any sense. We complain to them. Then they they dismiss us to send us away, and then they blame all the problems on us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is total BS. I mean, if I was those commanders in the field... And every day I see this guy get up and say, I listen to my commanders in the field. It's their fault. It's their fault. (laughs) Man, would I be pissed. This is Cenk Uger from the Young Turks on Best of the Left podcast. If you like what you hear, please go to our website, theyoungturks.com, where you can watch the show every day from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern time. You can also participate in discussion forums or live chat with Young Turks fans. And you can support liberal political programming by becoming a TYT member or by purchasing Young Turks merchandise. All that at theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. With the invention of the RSS feed and the podcast technology, I have, um, which, by the way, I have fallen utterly in love with, I have taken to referring to the world of news as a world of infinite aggregation and basically works out like this lots of stuff happens in the world you know way too much for anyone to keep track of ever and we have reporters who go out and gather as much of that news as possible they decide what they think is important And they talk about it. And then, you know, individuals uh, can go and read those news stories. They can, you know, of course, we just pick the things that we're interested in. But then there are also the talking heads, the talk shows, the radio shows, everybody like that. They pick out the stories that they find to be important and talk about them on the shows. And that perpetuates the story. And that gets fed down to the audience of those shows. And then just add another step. I have created a show where I pick out all the things that I think are important and I think are interesting. And then I edit down the clips. And 
you know, so n now by the time it gets down to me and I'm passing it along to you, you know, you're getting like a, you know, eyedropper's worth of baby bird food fed down your throat. And, you know, frankly, I, um, you know, as, as great as it is, I, I also kind of don't like the way that feels. I don't like that, um, I don't like that it's a one-way path where, you know, if you, if you look at it uh, as I see in my mind's eye, a giant funnel going from the world on top to a tiny eyedropper's worth of information uh, coming down to you, it, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And so that is why, um, that's just kind of my explanation for why I want to encourage you to, uh, you know, join and use not only my, um, you know, my like Frapper map that has a message board, but everybody else's message board and daily co's and, you know, every other major blog, um, this left wing echo chamber is still under construction. You know, the right wing has had theirs for about 30 years. It's, well, it's been building up for 30 years and now it's massive and we have got to get underway. And so just as a infinitely small part of that, I'd like to encourage you to, you know, join, join my uh, best of left community and, you know, use it to talk about the things that you hear on the show, talk about things you don't hear on the show, uh, talk about, you know, other blogs, what you heard, where you heard it, interesting information, ideas, and do the same thing on other blogs. Just get the conversation started, get people talking, and and don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people talking already, so get involved and go hear what they have to say, and and let's get a massive exchange of ideas going. That is, um, that's my hope. I know I don't usually um, go on like this with uh, with anything of any kind of substance, so. Um, I didn't mean to shock you or anything, but I just, I felt like it was necessary for me to finally, uh, kind of put out, um, some, some reasoning behind my, my requests, you know, my, uh, you know, I, I really don't have that much to say, so pretty much what I end up saying all the time is come join my site or leave me reviews and things like that, and I... I, I wish I had other things to say other than, you know, come support me and, and my cause, because it's, uh, it's much bigger than me and my cause, um, and I, I, that's absolutely how I feel about it. So, that being said, come join me and my cause at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. There are a million ways to uh, get involved with the show, and... Um, Let's get it started. Have a good one, everybody.